Today, we are continuing in our sermon series, looking through the book of Matthew and continuing to consider how God is calling us not only to survive during this season, but to thrive during this season. And so we have just come through this time where Jesus has been in an incredible amount of conflict with the Pharisees, Herodians, the chief, uh, chief priests of the temple, the scribes, legal experts, He's just come through this time. They have just decided that they are going to stop arguing with him in public. And this is how Jesus follows up that silence. He says this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do. For they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all students and call no one your father on earth for you have one father, the one in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah, The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, as we approach this scripture, please join me in praying for God's wisdom and intercession. Holy God, we pray that you will speak to our hearts and not just to our minds, that you will speak to the way that we live and not just the way we talk that we will heed your truth, not only when it is easy, but particularly when it is difficult. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned it before, but my parents, they live in Laverne, about 30 minutes east of here. And every time that I drive to visit them, I exit the freeway at Foothill. It's not the closest exit to my parents' house. The closest exit to my parents' house is Fruit Street. If we're tracking the traffic through Google to make sure that we're not running into a major traffic jam, Google gives us directions to exit Fruit Street. If my husband is driving us to my parents' house, we exit Fruit Street. If my parents are driving us to my parents' house, they exit Fruit Street. But even though I know that Fruit Street is the closer easier, faster way to my parents' house. It has far less stop stop lights and stop signs, less turns, less pedestrians. It's the better way for us to get to see my family quicker and to arrive less stressed. Even though I know all of that, I still exit at Foothill because when I moved away from Laverne over 20 years ago, the freeway ended at Foothill and there was no other option to go. Now, more than 20 years later, even though there is a clearer, easier path, I still take that old, familiar way. Something in me 
still believes that my way is better, maybe even the only way. Even though an objectively better option exists now that had never existed before. Friends, I wonder if you have any tradition or habit or pattern of thinking that you repeat even though you know that there is a better way. Maybe you stick with the way you've always done it simply because it's the way that you've always done it. Or maybe you feel like there's more meaning in your way than there would be in a new way. Maybe you have really good memories associated with the way that you have always done it. And you like reliving the feelings that those memories give you. Maybe you like the identity that you have from thinking a particular way or acting a particular way. Friends, for whatever reason we might do it, I want you to ask along with me, do you have some way that you repeat yourself over and over in life, a way of thinking or a way of doing? Because the way that you do it means more to you than what a new way might offer you. Sometimes I wonder if maybe we keep particular habits or traditions because it makes us feel superior to the people who are around us. Perhaps we feel so confident in the way that we do something that we have no qualms about telling people about how our unique right way is so much better and how anyone else's way is completely wrong. They should absolutely do things the way we do. When I was in seminary, I had this friend, her name was Robin. We lived on the same floor and Robin had very strong feelings about the way that someone would take from a cheese plate. She would lecture us about how terrible it was when someone would cut horizontally across the brie, leaving the fuzzy rind of the brie all by itself at the end. She would say, how selfish, what a waste. Anybody who would do that doesn't have any class. I have to tell you that as a seminarian, it's not like cheese plates were really central to our diet. It's not like we ate them ever let alone all the time. So I have no idea how often, why this subject came up as often as it did. But all of us who lived on Robin's floor quickly figured out what we would do if we ever found ourselves in the same room with Robin and a cheese plate. I wonder, have you ever felt like your unique particular way of looking at something, of thinking about something, or doing something, have you ever felt that it was just objectively better to the point where you were going to put energy behind holding other people to your personal preferential standard? I think that we all have. And I think that it's this combination between ingrained habit and ingrained superiority that Jesus is pointing out in regard to the Pharisees. It's not that the Pharisees are wrong in what they teach. 
And that's important to note because in verse three, Jesus goes out of his way to tell the crowds that the Pharisees are right in their teaching. And Jesus tells the people that they should do what the Pharisees say. It's just that they shouldn't do what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees' content is fine. It was just the Pharisees' content uh, the Pharisees' conduct that was lousy. Their conduct was lousy because the Pharisees had enacted a web of oral rules and traditions that made the practice of being faithful difficult. And the Pharisees came to value and honor their own rules and traditions more than they came to honor the law that those traditions were built around. I want to explain this. So give me a little bit of leeway here. The Pharisees truly were experts in the law of Moses. And the law of Moses had been given to the Israelites to draw humanity and God back together again. The law was the rules that were given to Moses by God that were meant to be consumed by the people with the purpose of closing that space that had started to grow between all of creation and God when sin entered into the world. The law is God's gift of grace to the people. Over time, the religious leaders began to add these oral traditions around the law of Moses, sort of as preliminary safeguards against breaking the law, sort of like those velvet ropes that you come up against when you go to a museum that surrounds precious artifacts. They keep the crowd at enough of a distance that there is absolutely no way that someone can come close to breaking that precious thing that's being protected. We have seen examples of this kind of thinking of added oral tradition around rules or laws in different parts of our society in recent decades. So I'm gonna give you an example. It's, I want us to take a societal rule that people have held for generations in one form or another, though it changes places at certain times or whatever. There's always been a societal rule that, children should, that adults should not have children outside of marriage. And so that's been present in our society one way or another for ages. Pretty soon, in some circles, extra rules started to pop up around that particular rule. So you're not supposed to have a child outside of marriage, so then it's best that you not have sex outside of marriage. Which means that it's probably best that you don't dance either. Because if you dance, you might be tempted to have sex, which might give you a child outside of marriage, which probably means that you shouldn't listen to upbeat music that makes you want to dance. Because if you listen to the upbeat music, then you'll be tempted to dance, which you'll be tempted to have sex, which you'll be tempted to have a child outside of marriage. So the rule is that you do not listen to upbeat music so that you don't have children outside of marriage. There is an added safeguard around the original rule that adds a velvet rope between us and the law of God. 
And with every added safeguard, there's another rope. And before long, we are so far back away from the law that we can't quite see what the actual law was to begin with. As time passes, the rule changes, and no one really remembers how that rule got to be there anyway. And meanwhile, that initial grace of God given to us in the law is lost. Friends, that's what Jesus saw happening at the hands of the Pharisees. That is why Jesus was upset with them because he saw how the Pharisees were stringing velvet rope after velvet rope. And the Pharisees had come to value these velvet ropes more than they had come to value the actual law itself. They had come to cherish their habits instead of cherishing God. The message phrases Jesus' words in verses four to seven of our scripture in this way, saying this. Instead, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Instead of giving you God's law as food and drink by which you can banquet on God, the Pharisees package it in bundles of rules, loading you down like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under these loads, and they don't even think about lifting a finger to help you. Jesus is pointing out that the content of what the Pharisees are teaching about the law is true, but their conduct in enacting all of these velvet ropes around the law meant that they themselves were not close enough to God in order to accept the law as grace. As Peterson phrases it in verse three, he says, the Pharisees talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It is all spit and polish veneer. Friends, I really don't think that the Pharisees were bad people, and I really don't think that Jesus hated the Pharisees at all. I think that Jesus pitied the Pharisees, felt woe for the Pharisees, because humanity wasn't created to experience God from behind a velvet rope. Not even the Pharisees. The Pharisees felt so confident, so superior for having it all figured out, for having enacted all of these oral rules and traditions that would keep their community at a safe distance from breaking God's law. They were proud of it. And they loved how people would look at them with a sense of gratitude and awe, always wanting their approval, always wanting their assurances that they, the people, were doing this faith thing right. As the scripture says, the Pharisees loved to sit at the head table at church dinners, basking in the most prominent positions, preening in the radiance of public flattery. I think, friends, that the Pharisees set up all of these ropes and safeguards around the law out of good intentions. I think they wanted to help people do things right. But in all of their self-satisfaction, 
they couldn't or they wouldn't see how all of these extra regulations were having the opposite effect on their friends and their neighbors and their family of faith. Rather than keeping their community safer, they were putting a distance between the people and their God. And it didn't matter that the Pharisees knew all of the right content because their conduct was causing a major detrimental effect on the relationship between the people and God. If you don't hear me say anything else today, then I want you to hear me say this. No one was ever created to live at a distance from God. Not you, not me, not the person that's living in the mansion at the top of the hill, not the person who's living in a tent under the freeway, not Republicans, not Democrats, not progressives, not conservatives. No one was created to live at a distance from the living God. Which means that as Christians, we must ask ourselves an important question. Do we have any personal rules or preferences or habits or traditions that we expect ourselves or others to follow in order to get close to God's presence, in order to pave a way between God and us? Do we have any habits of thinking that cause us to sort of dance around God and negotiate? Do we have any habits of thinking that prevent us from just sitting peacefully in the presence of God? When my goal is to visit my parents and enjoy my time with them, it really doesn't make any sense for me to take the route that forces me to take a hairpin turn and wait at five stoplights and three stop signs and to show up a little bit later than I would like to and a little bit more stressed than I would like to. When the goal is to spend time with my parents, that route just doesn't make sense. It's the same way with Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is the stress-free route. When the goal is to get ourselves into God's presence, Jesus is the only path. And there are no ropes that we can put between us and Jesus. There is no way that we can box Jesus off so that no one can touch him. If we do, we are missing the point. Just as the law was given to the people to be handled and addressed by the people, so Jesus has been given to us as the people to be in relationship with us, to close the gap between us and God. Friends, I am really hoping and really, really wanting us here at San Marino Community Church to be the people who actively look for any ropes that have been set up between God and humanity 
I want us to be the people who look for those ropes and then actively go and take them down. I think that it is so important for us to be able to reflect and see how have we made it difficult for us to get into God's path and then to look and see Have we unwittingly, maybe out of good intentions, put little ropes and extra traditions around God that are keeping others from getting into God's way, that are holding others at a distance? Are we unwittingly holding our children and our youth and our neighbors at a distance from God? I really really want us to be the people who actively look for those ropes and take them down, who choose to honor the presence of God and the values of God and the grace of God more than we value and honor our own traditions and our own habits and our own way of thinking. That is what God did when God sent Jesus here God sent Jesus to this table to close that gap. And that is why every single month we gather at our tables and we recognize that we have been invited, that we didn't earn our way here. There were no velvet ropes that led us here. We didn't have to unlock anything to get here. We were invited to this table, not because of anything that we did or any way that we thought, not because of us at all. We were invited at this table because of who Jesus is. As we come to this table today, friends, and as you prepare with us at home, I invite you to join me as we pray. God, we are grateful that you have not allowed anything to come in the way between you and us. We are so grateful, God, that you continually have sought us. When we have put up boundaries, you have torn them down. When we have run away, you have come to find us. When we prefer the darkness, you have shown a light. God, we are so grateful that you have pursued us when we have fled from you. As we come to this table today, God, we pray that you will please open our hearts and transform us to embody that extraordinary presence of your spirit of reconciliation. We ask that you will do that in the same way that you take this bread and this juice and you set it apart, a mysterious symbol of your presence here with us, here around us, here in us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.